This morning's scripture is from Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Children, grades K through second, you're now dismissed to Grace Kids. Please take your parents with you as you go. Well, before we dive in, I want to recognize one person, David Mainzinger, back there. You'll have to walk a little bit. David is our newest intern at Orlando Grace Church, so welcome him with me. (laughs) David is a student at RTS pursuing his MDiv. He is married to Julia. You are from Chicago. She's from Ohio. Um, It's obvious what, what you're wanting to do. What most people might not know is that Julia is a software engineer, And uh, she is so good at what she does, I can't tell you what she does. (laughs) At least not all of it. They have uh, Evelyn, their two-year-old, and Nova, their four-month-old. And they have, uh, they they met in Western China and have a pretty amazing story about getting kicked out of China. I can't say it from here, but if you get the chance to have them in your home or to get to know them, um, it is a story worth hearing. So we're thankful for you, David. Every intern has a specific role. Uh, His has been live streamed, so we'll have to figure out something new for you in a couple weeks. But if you don't know David and Julia, I encourage you to reach out and get to know them. All right, we are in our third and final uh, part of this series that we've called confessional and missional. So we have defined what it means to be missional. We've defined what it means to be confessional. We've looked at what it looks like to drift to one side at the expense of the other. And today we're going to go to Acts 2 to look at what it looks like in the church when we're firing on all cylinders, when when that intersection of of confession and mission is, is adequately found. So I I once heard Alistair Begg uh, talking about leadership books. And he said, you know, he said, I read read all these leadership books and they all pretty much boil down to the same thing. If you know the basics and execute them, you're probably going to succeed. (laughs) And his point was, you can say that that about the church as well. If the church knows the basics of what we're called to do and be and we execute them reasonably well, generally that's going to work. The problem is that we don't always know the basics. You know, I I critiqued some churches, I think it was last week, who who may think things are going really well, but they don't actually know the basics. And so even though they're accomplishing their goals for the church, I would not say they're accomplishing God's goals for the church. So again, quoting Begg, he says, we are a church body and we need to know how to check our vital signs. And so this passage in Acts Acts 2 is a way of checking our vital signs, reminding ourselves of the basics so we can be successful as a church as God defines success, not as the world might define success. So I want to walk through this passage, and I want to look at this early church, and I want to see the early church's confessional commitment, 
Then I want to see the internal result of that confessional commitment. And then thirdly, I want to see the external result of that confessional commitment. So first, the early church's confessional commitment. And you maybe remember from, it's been four weeks now, maybe you don't remember. When I say confessional, I'm talking about what it is we confess, what it is that we believe about God. And we can see that the early church was committed to learning about God. We'll pick this up in verse 42. Luke writes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, that's really important because the apostles were chosen by Jesus to be taught by Jesus, then remember what Jesus taught, and then they would themselves teach those things and ultimately record them in what we now call the New Testament. And this is exactly what Jesus said would happen in verse 26, so, all right, John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the apostles, they have a very specific role and this early church is devoting themselves to these teachings. John Stott said the Holy Spirit opened a school that day in Jerusalem. The teachers were the apostles appointed by Jesus and 3,000 people were in kindergarten. Unless there be any doubt that, that these apostles were in fact there with the authority of God himself behind them, these signs and these wonders accompany the teachings of these apostles. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So these, these wonders and these signs, they were a way that the Holy Spirit chose to authenticate the teachings that these apostles were bringing to these 3,000-ish people. And this is, this is exactly what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. Same thing happened to them. 2 Corinthians 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, I do think you know, God can and still does do signs and wonders. God, God can do whatever God wants. And I've seen and heard of things from people I trust that I cannot explain any other way than God doing signs and wonders. But we as a church today should not expect these kinds of signs and wonders the way the early church did. Because remember, the role of these signs and wonders was to authenticate the teachings of the, the apostles. Well, that happened. And then they were recorded in the New Testament, and then the apostles died. So there is no more need for signs and wonders to authenticate what we have in our Bibles. So this is another reason that we don't have apostles anymore. <laughs> because these were people in Jesus' day chosen by Jesus to do a very specific thing. To secure, teach, I say to, to understand, teach, and secure the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so they have done that job. They have, they have uh, learned truth and recorded truth that we might know truth and tell other people that truth today. And so anytime I talk about the word truth though, I know there's, in our, in our context, maybe not everyone here, but people will push back and say, well, who are you to claim some sort of universal truth? You know, you can't claim a universal truth. Nobody can do that anymore. But in doing so, what have they just done? Made a universal truth. I mean, when you say you can't draw a line in the sand, what have they just done? They've drawn a line in the sand. I mean, you cannot, no one, no one lives in a world without universal truths. 
everyone claims some sort of exclusive truth. They just need to see how they're doing it. Uh, so then the question is, right, whose universal truth is narrow-minded or, and whose uh, universal truth is open-minded? This is a pastor that I respect. He said, we all make universal and exclusive truth claims. The narrow-minded are those whose truth claims make them combative and prideful. The open-minded are those who have truth claims that make them humble, which of course the gospel of Jesus Christ does. There is nothing we can do to get to God. We can't earn it, and it is all by grace. That is inherently the most uh, humble-making universal truth you will interact with in the world. Jesus taught truth. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. The apostles, they were stewards of this truth, and we see that this early church is a confessional church because of their devotion to learning this truth, to embodying this truth. And so should we be. And so at Orlando Grace Church, the ways, there are ways that we try to do the same. We, of course, we talked about what it means to be a confessional church and what a confession is, but it doesn't stop there. We want to be a church that's always growing in the teachings of the apostles. So this is why we practice expositional preaching. So we, just, we walk through books of the Bible and we expose people to the Bible. Um, we, our, our hope is that, that the main point of the text is always going to be the main point of the sermon, that we're faithful to what it is that, uh, to what it is that the Bible's saying. Uh, I am not primarily a motivational speaker. <laughs> My primary job as it pertains to standing here is to bring God's word and hopefully teach it faithfully and apply it well. Uh, this is why we have adult equipping hour during both services. I guess we need to change that to equipping hours now. I just thought about that. But we, we have adult education in both services. We have children's Sunday school in both, during both services. I had somebody recently, I was telling them that, uh, that we have adult Sunday school and children's Sunday school. And, and the response was, wow, your, your church is old school. And I was like, well, if you want to talk about doing what the early church did, yes, we are extremely old school. We are devoted to learning and growing in the teachings of the apostles. Um, lost my spot. The early church, they were committed to this. So should we. And when we are committed to this confessional side of of Christianity, there is going to be an internal result. We see two things specifically in this church, two internal results of their, com their com confessional commitment. That is a mouthful. All right, so when I say internal results, I'm talking about things happening inside the church. That's what I mean. And the first is that they were devoted to worship. They didn't just keep this truth in their heads. It made its way into their hearts in a way that overflowed with joyful, grateful uh, adoration for God, praise of God, what we call worship of God. And we see that the, this worship, it had a formal expression and it had an informal expression. Let's keep reading verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, this breaking of bread and prayers, it is almost certainly referring to some sort of prayer service and communion that was happening in homes. But, as we see in verse 46, it wasn't just happening in homes. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. So they, there was this temple aspect to it. The church, 
the, the church as we know it in Judaism had not formally broken apart yet. So they were still going to the temple. They probably most certainly weren't sacrificing anything, but they were going, they were praising, they were praying. Um, and you, you hear people say, you know, well, home church models now, that, that's the only way to do it. And other people say high church models, that's the only way to do it. Well, in the early church, we see both both this formal and informal form of worship. But we do need to see, when we look at this, simply that the early church placed a high value on actually gathering together. I mean, that's really important for us to see. I mean, worshiping is inherently an embodied experience. There's an individual part of that, but there's a communal part of that as well. This is why when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, uh, he told them to, in the context of the Lord's Supper, do this when you gather together. There's an assumption that they're gathering together. Uh, But then the, uh, the author of Hebrews makes it very clear that that is not just an assumption but a command when he says do not neglect the gathering the gathering is something that we're to hold uh, in, in high priority when we prioritize our lives God did not design us to have an individual or kind of you know this private spiritual life he designed us to come together to gather and to worship him together we pray together we sing together we hear a portion of God's word taught together We take communion together, and then we are sent out together. This is the design. We see this happen in the early church. But I've seen so many people, especially this year, who just haven't gone back to church yet on Sundays. And they're all different. Everybody's different in different reasons, different places. But actually, my Sunday morning routine is to go to Einstein bagels and get something. And there's this this group of older ladies that in the pandemic they began to, they weren't having church so they were meeting together and studying and it was a sweet little group that I've gotten to know over the past eight months and now everybody's gone back to church except one, one of the women and I, I know her pastor and her church, she has a great church and I asked her, is it, is it time to go back yet? And, and she said yes it is, it's just so easy to turn on the, you know, watch when I want to watch it and she was real sweet, she was like I'm just, I'm just lazy and I was like well you know what you need to do I don't want to see you here next week and it's sweet. So, so I don't, I don't, she had a sweet, humble spirit about her, so I don't want to like throw her under the bus. But when we are saying, yeah, it's just, it's easier to watch on TV or I'm just lazy, even if we're honest about it, what we're inherently doing is saying, God doesn't deserve this. God isn't worth our worship. That's what we're saying. I mean, it, it is, when we gather, there's a secondary dimension about us that I'm going to talk about, but when we gather, we primarily gather because God deserves it, because of what he has done in our lives in redeeming the church. He deserves our worship. So that's the first reason that we come together is because God deserves it. But because he has designed us to interact with him in a certain way, worship secondarily does nourish us. It sanctifies us. It, it makes us more into his image. And so when we don't come together and gather and worship, it affects us negatively in a spiritual, in a spiritual way. And I know there are people who say, uh, well, I just, I, I, I enjoy watching on TV and not having it dressed. I've heard people say, you know, I'd rather just listen on my way to the beach or, or put my AirPods on on the golf course. I'm still listening. I might even sing. But to do that is, to me, the same thing as a deployed soldier having a Zoom relationship with his wife. 
I mean, yes, it's better than nothing, but it's not what it was designed to be. And then we have to think about the stewardship of our children. I mean, when we, when we make worship, the gathered worship, a priority, we are informing the worldviews of our children and our grandchildren in a significant way. And so if, if we don't prioritize the gathering of God's people, why would we think they will one day with, Lord willing, our grandkids? And so we have to understand the priority of God gathered worship, both in its primary, uh, the primary motivation and the secondary motivation. But in their worship, in the early church, we also see that they are both full of joy and reverence. Um, picking up halfway through verse 46. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, there's some translations that I, I like to say glad and sincere hearts. So that's the, the dichotomy, glad and sincere, joy and reverence. Praising God and having favor with the people. So there's joy and there's reverence. There's this realization that God is really with us mysteriously, supernaturally, some way when we gather together and there is an appropriate awe that we even get to be here in the presence of God. But then there's a joy because we can approach him confidently. We, we, we know because of the work in Jesus Christ, we don't have to approach him fearfully. We can have joy and express ourselves in joy. And so, you know, in our context, if, if this is the all side, I feel, you know, we, we do that pretty well. We may do well to come a little bit back towards the joy side, although there's some of you that shoot some amens, and I really appreciate that, and people who raise their hands, you are a blessing to me and many other people. But this wasn't a stoic group. They were filled with joy and awe and wonder. And then the second thing, so the first internal result was worship. The second internal result of their confessional commitment is a display of their sweet fellowship. Sweet fellowship. So there's obviously this vertical fellowship that we now have with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And because of that, there's a new kind of horizontal fellowship between God's people. Not only are they gathering in each other's homes daily, they are also sharing all their possessions. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. All right, this is a challenging verse. <laughs> And more times than I should hear, I hear people teaching this and doing, going to one of two extremes. There is a group that wants to go over here and say, see, we should have more of a socialized, communistic form, or at least com communal form of life in the church where we share all things. That, that's one extreme. The other extreme is people who just want to go to this passage and mainly show it's not communism and it doesn't apply to us today. And I think both extremes really miss the main point of what's going on here in the early church. They are really sharing what they have. And now it's not communism because it's voluntary. And they do clearly own their own homes to be able to break bread in. But we, it just has to land on us. This, they are sharing all things. And this can't be something that was just for this unique group of people early on. Because much later in 1 John, John says this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This isn't limited to this little group here. 
As my six-year-old will often remind me, especially when he wants something, daddy caring is sharing. Well, he's right, even though I don't always care to share what he wants me to share, but, but at the, if we care, we will share. I mean, that, that's the way that, 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 we, that people work. And, and this kind of sacrificial fellowship, it extends into our homes and into our bank accounts. You know, and I've, I'm not the best at this, and I'm routinely challenged by people around me. I have a, a friend who got to keep these really general, uh, lives in a very normal-sized house, normal-sized house. They have four kids, so they fill that normal-sized house up pretty well, yet they regularly open up a room for a seminary student to live with them. Not just come for a week, live with them for months or years. You know, I knew there, there was a, a few years ago, there was a young mom who really felt a call to uh, get a counseling degree. And, and this call was affirmed by unique situations and church and everything. But uh, the problem was she herself had three kids that she needed to figure out how to care for. Well, another young mom in the church, also with little kids, said, how long is your degree? The answer is two years. She said, I've got your kids every time you're in class for two years. I've seen people sell a nice car so that they can drive a lesser car and be able to provide for a unique need inside the church. I mean, this is that kind of sacrificial giving that, I mean, it, it, it's all things for all people. Deep fellowship is what the church back then had. And deep fellowship is what was getting to this extreme of sharing all things and having all things in common. And for us today, I don't feel like I can jump to apply this to our giving and, and sacrificially helping each other because I feel like we need to come one step back and just even developing basic fellowship, <laughs> like knowing each other and being connected in a way where we will care and will want to share because we live in one of the most disconnected cultures I, I think you could ever find. And, and I mean, this is pre-COVID disconnected. We live in a culture that, that puts money into our backyards, you know, so that we can go outside and hang out with who we want to hang out and not have to see our neighbors, you know, in most cultures around the world, they live in close proximity to the people that they worship with. The, I mean, you're, you just naturally run into each other. When you walk to the store, you will run into people in your community, run into people in the church. It is very common to have an impromptu tea or coffee with somebody in your church just walking to the store. And then you go to the store and you know the person who's, who's providing you these goods. That person may be a person in your church. Most societies are just much more naturally connected. For us, we don't even go to the store anymore. I mean, we, we click a button and it magically appears four hours later on our doorstop and you know that when you see that, that, dry, that person coming, you wait until they're gone to go get that package. You know you do that. I can't be the only one who does it. I need to get better at that myself. But this is our, this is our context and that was all pre-COVID. Now you add COVID in and we're more disconnected than we've ever been. We're more separated. We've in some cases been used to watching online for a long time, so I think you can make the case that Christians in our culture are really more disconnected and separated maybe than we've ever been before as a culture. So this needs to be addressed before I can go over and talk about sharing. So we are trying to be very intentional right now in helping people to connect in this church. We have a lot of new people 
And you might not know it on Memorial Weekend, but we have, I mean, the attendance has been higher than, than anything we've ever seen before. And so, so we're trying to be intentional in helping everyone to plug in. So we're, you know, most community groups go, go back down to like a monthly gathering instead of a weekly or bi-weekly gathering. So that's a harder, that's a challenge in the summer. So we're trying to create other opportunities to connect. Some uh, young adult gatherings, creating some young family gatherings. Uh, we've got this connect wall out there that will soon be manned by a volunteer. We're looking to add dimensions and trainings to our greeter team to help to help identify new people and help you to take the next steps that you want to take. Uh, because there's so many new people, we are going to have a, a summer Discover OGC class that will start in mid-July. Um, we are adding to the volunteers that we have uh, helping our student ministry. That is 6th through 12th grades. Uh, and then some of you, I see you, like you are just faithfully every Sunday, you know, you could go hang out with your friends, but you go to the new people, you know, and you, and you, don't, you don't just have a conversation. Some of you are even inviting new people into your homes. And I'm not going to embarrass you by calling you out, but I know who you are and I'm thankful for you. So in this area of just connecting because of this unique season that we're in, we're coming out of COVID and we have all these new people, I want to give two challenges. The first challenge is to you who are connected and or a member at OGC. Would you consider, would you prayerfully consider really trying to connect with people you don't know here? And here's what's practically happened in this church uh, and maybe others as well. So you come back after a month or two months or eight months or 12 months of not coming here and there are these new people and we can tend to be uh, hesitant to go and introduce ourselves to somebody because, oh my goodness, what if they've been coming for eight months and I'm assuming they're new here? I don't know them, so I don't introduce myself. Well, the, 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 we need to get rid of that and just say, I don't know you, I'd like to know you. I mean, it doesn't matter how long we've been coming. And so would we who have been here for some time look at people who we don't know and, and get to know them and, and not just say, hey, I'm church, but then, you know, connect, bring them into your home, get to know them so we can know each other better. And the other challenge is to you who are new here. Would you prayerfully consider what is your next step in plugging into this church? If, and we hope it's this church. Maybe it's another church. But if it's this church, what's your next step? You know, we would love to, to walk with you in that and help. It might, be, it might just be the e-news. It might be going to one of these groups. It might be to discover OGC class. But what is the next step for you in, in, in connecting in a way where that we can know each other well enough that we will be able to not just know about needs but have the kinds of friendships and relationships where we're going to want to sacrificially provide for other people. N.T. Wright said, you know, this word that Luke uses for fellowship, it means at least friendship but not, but not less. So, so we're, ju we're just entering into this low bar here right now, okay? It means more than friendship, but it's at least friendship. And, and I'm not under any illusion that we're all going to be friends with each other. That's just, that ship has sailed. There's too many people. But I am under the deep conviction that we should know each other well, and we can know and have real friendships uh, in this church. It won't be everybody, but it will be some people. And my former church... We, we had a season where we grew really fast. It was, I don't, maybe it's about a year and a half where we went from about 100 people to 800 people. And, and we, you know, inside we're all like, you know, there's false humility. It was like, yes, this room is full. 
But nobody, it, it was a mile wide and an inch deep. And because it was a mile wide and an inch deep, you know, the next new cool church came in and beamed their hologram pastor into the city and 250 people left. We don't want that to happen here. We want this, this church family, if God has growth for us, we want to grow well. So, when our confessional commitment changes us in this way, when it changes us internally in our worship and then in our fellowship where we know each other so well that we know each other's needs and we want to sacrificially provide for each other, there then lastly is an external change to the confessional commitment. The external result is missional lives. Missional lives. So Luke makes it clear that this, this group, this early church, they weren't a holy huddle, they were not a commune, they were not a monastery, they were engaged in their culture. And we see this from verses 46 and 47. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So daily, people are being added to the number. And, and this isn't people from other churches coming over here. This is, these aren't new Christians who had just moved to town. These are new believers, people who did not know Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they themselves devoting themselves to the knowledge of the Lord and the worship of God and the fellowship of, of the saints. And there's this natural overflow then that we would call evangelism. People are coming to know the Lord. John Stott writes, the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who created a missionary church. And this missional activity that happens in the church, it isn't, in the early church at least, it's not programized, it's not guilted, it's not, uh, it's not forced in some way, it's just this natural organic overflow of what God is already doing in the individuals and through them corporately. So, if that's true, there may be someone thinking, well God, God or I don't know God, I don't have this this natural overflow inside. Is there something wrong spiritually where that's not happening with me? And of course, only God and you can answer that question. I couldn't, but I would ask you: Is your life marked the same by the same things that the early church is marked by? Are are you devoting yourself to the teachings of the apostles? Are you making regular room for worship in your lives? And are you really engaged with other believers in this church? And if all those three things are happening, then I think you are able to answer that question. But if those three aren't happening, that's where I would turn your attention. And I've noticed, as I've talked with people through this series, and it's been very helpful to talk with people through this series, is that we are still defining this word missionally in, in different ways. So pretty much everybody I talk to, there's of course an international scope to m- being missional. And that, that seems to be clear to everybody. But I see this division, if you're below a certain age, and I won't dare to guess what that age is, but if you're below a certain age, primarily you're thinking missional is navigating the relationships that you already have or people in close proximity to, say neighbors or coworkers, navigating those relationships in a way where you can hopefully point them to Jesus. If you're above a certain age, uh, you would primarily, generally, generally speaking, think of living missionally as serving the underprivileged, giving to the poor, and serving alongside organizations that are doing a very good job at that. And so what I want to say is when I say missional, I'm talking about all of that. 
All of that. Not primarily one or the other, all of it. Because that's what we see happening in the early church. But I am thinking that the primary thrust to this thing that we're calling missional is, is on us. Like, this isn't something that, that the church is going, it's not, not some big program that we're, we're leading up to. It's not some big change in the Sunday service that we're leading up to. It's the elders of this church really seeing and embracing Ephesians 4 where we exist to equip the saints, you, for the work of the ministry. And there will be some things, of course, that we centrally plan, but as a whole, this is us just worshiping God, devoting ourselves to his teaching, and getting to know each other well enough that these, these natural missional lives just develop. So I think it's also helpful for me to think and speak about what then does that, what is my role as a pastor, and I'm even going to limit, being a pastor means a lot, but just in this space here, like what does this mean? My role is to hopefully teach the Bible faithfully in a way that gives everyone here biblical truths, gospel-centered biblical truths that will help us navigate this world that we live in. And so what I've realized over the past year is that I am going to disappoint a lot of people. Man, I don't know. I'm going to disappoint people, which I'm, I'm a people pleaser. I don't like disappointing people. This has been a year of disappointing people. Um, I am going to disappoint a group to my left and a group to my right. So the group to my left, uh, and I didn't mean to create pejorative terms, but that's just kind of what came out. So let's call this group the, the, the true social justice warriors, okay? Um, this group w- I would say our podcast didn't go near far enough, didn't do near enough. You know, that we as a church aren't doing near enough. And, and maybe we can grow because my desire is that we would engage this world and see biblical justice applied rightly in, in this world. But you get over here to this far left and they're never going to be satisfied because they don't understand God's plan for justice in this world. He, they don't understand that the injustice that they have done God and the just wrath that went to Jesus instead of anybody who believes in Jesus. They don't understand that grace and the ultimate justice is coming at the end of time so they can never be pleased. There's no way that this group will ever fully be pleased because they're seeking justice without the Bible. And so I, I, am, when I, I am going to walk through texts and if there are texts that speak to some sort, speak to, I'm, going to, I'm going to say it, but I'm not going to teach based on whatever the social aura issue of the day is. I'm also not going to be naive to the social issues of the day. And my prayer is that God in his providence, as we have laid out to teach the Bible, would have the right text at the right time come up where I would be able to give helpful truths from the Bible to navigate this world that we live in. And by God's grace, it seems like that's exactly what happens. <laughs> right when you know, there's some issue pops up, oh, this is, this is what the text says. This is what it's teaching. So we praise God for that. But the other group that I will never please are the culture warriors to my right, all right? I do not see my role as a pastor primarily to right this country. If I wanted to do that, and by the way, I praise God for the people who had is their call. That's just not my call. And if I wanted to do that, I would have run for office. So I see my job primarily as to help all of us, me included, because I'm growing this, all of us know how to navigate this crazy world that we live in. 
and that do it with the hope of the gospel and the promise of eternal life that exists for all of us in Jesus Christ. And sometimes that's going to mean speaking to issues, sometimes that won't, but I'm, I'm not primarily here to write the country, I'm primarily here to serve the local church. And I hope that as we do this and we navigate this world the way the Bible encourages us to by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God and the, the, the love and the mercy of the gospel that other people will see it and understand Jesus better and begin to fill up these other seats because we're all living missional lives. And I know that I will never be perfect at this. And you will never be perfect at this. And we need to be comforted in that. Because we should strive for this intersection of mission and confession. We, we all need to. But the, at the end of the day, the people that we're trying to reach are too far gone. Their minds, their souls, their bodies are too ravaged by sin for any of us to perfectly reason them into God. No, no intersection of mission and confession will ever be enough for them. And Luke makes that clear when he says who it is that was adding the people every day. Who is it? The Lord. This is verse 47. And the Lord added to their number. So we're going to do what we're called to do because it's, it's honoring God and it's good for us and we know the, the ordained result. But we know that it's God who's adding the number and that should comfort us. It should actually fuel us to go out there because we're people in whom the Holy Spirit is working sent out to other people in whom the Holy Spirit is working. Now we don't know who those people are so that allows us to sow broadly. I mean, when Jesus looked at the lost, did he say, the harvest is few, but the workers are many? No. Jesus looked at the harvest and said, the harvest is full, but the workers are few. We are the workers. He's not talking about full-time pastors and missionaries. He's talking about Christians who want to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are the workers, and we get, we get to be a part of that harvest. God will save who he wants to save. The question is, do we want the thrill and the joy and the sanctifying sanctification that comes with being a part of God, with God on that mission? God designed a church to be both confessional and missional. And he didn't, he didn't start that at Pentecost. You see a church that is both confessional and missional with Abraham Abraham was a pagan, called out of his paganism and called, in, called to a life that would ultimately bless all the nations. I mean, you see mission and confession in the church in Moses' time, having come through the Red Sea, wandering, what are they doing? They're devoting themselves to Moses' teaching. Not all, they have some, they have some hiccups along, they're trying. You know, they have seasons that are better than others, but they're devoting themselves to what we would call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as they march on toward the promised land. There's a mission and there's a confession there. And now we, as the local church in the New Testament time, we find ourselves in a similar but different state as that earlier church. We have passed through the waters of baptism and we are now wandering in a world marching toward a better promised land in hopes of bringing other people there with us. The church has always been both confessional and missional because we know that the confession is the instruction 
that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God will lead us to a life with God eternally with no sin where we have only perfect fellowship, perfect worship, and perfect love. And so we don't fear. We navigate this world the way that God said that we should. We leave the results to him. We have peaceful hearts and we proclaim his sovereignty to everyone who is really in our lives. That's what the church has always been and that's what we're hoping to be. And again, no church is perfect. We're always going to need, you know, we need to be, we're gonna go between these boundaries, but this is what we're aiming at. This is what the elders of this church want us to aim at and we just want to be as clear as possible about what this does and does not mean. So I hope this, uh, this series was helpful for you. As always, if you have any continuing questions about anything, especially the direction of the church, I invite you to come to me or any of the elders. We would love to make anything that is yet unclear, clear. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful that you have called us into fellowship with you, fellowship with each other, and engagement of this world. And we pray that you would just help us all, all of us in this room, all of us watching, to understand this intersection, to see this, the crosshairs of missional and confessional better over the coming weeks, months, and years of our lives. We want to be a church that honors you and glorifies you. And we just pray that, um, that we would be that. I thank you for all the ways that this church is. And I thank you for all that has yet to be, but will be. God, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. And we ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.